chapter um, 17, verses 16. It's a little long passage. We're going to walk through this today, but we want to read it, read God's Word in its entirety this morning before we get started. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Let's read together. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arab... I practiced this word all week so I could get it, and then I stumbled over it. All right, Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship is un as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one nation every man of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for bringing everyone here to your house this morning. I pray that our hearts can be open to your word and to your scripture. I pray, as Brother Chris said, that we can leave whatever we need to leave outside these doors, that we can focus on you today. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit being with us. We pray that your word is just open, glorified, and uh, you are the center of everything in our lives. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right. <clears throat> All right. So the, um, I want to make sure I preface the title a little bit of today's sermon because to me it's kind of a combination of the last three weeks. Um, it's the last three weeks. So the, the title of the sermon today is The Holy Spirit Can Keep Your Hands Clean. The Holy Spirit Can Keep Your Hands Clean. And this goes back to three whole weeks. Three weeks ago, Pastor Huff brought a message from Ezekiel. And he talked about when you blow the trumpet, you know, we have to blow it for other believers. If we do not blow it, then the blood is on our hands because we do not share the message of Christ. Right? 
Then the last two weeks, we've talked through 13 different steps of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit means and does in our life. And today, when I look at I'm combining those together to kind of like, so, a, a so what? What do we do with those um, topics together? And that's what we're going to be looking at today in the book of Acts, here from what Paul um, brings together for us. So, and then also in our, in our Bible study, we've been go, walking through the interpretive journey. Uh, what, what does that interpretive journey mean? What does the scripture mean uh, in the time that it was written? And then we're studying that scripture in detail and then bringing that a, across the bridge that we spanned thousands of years and how do we get to uh, what it means to us today, right? So putting all of this together, uh, I just want to share a little bit about Acts. Um, so, of course, it's in the New Testament. We have the Gospels, right? The Gospels are four separate counts, you know, of the story, uh, of the Gospel story and of Christ. But we only have one book of the Bible, and that's Acts, that tells us about the story of the early church and the growth of the early church. And that is here in the book of Acts. It was written by Dr. Luke. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Dr. Luke, but you have to remember there are other people uh, just like us that have different roles. So Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor, right? We have all these different people that are telling uh, the stories and God is inspiring um, all of their messages that we read today. And the book of Acts is essentially can be split up into several different pieces, but there's really two pieces, two parts in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters is a story about Peter and the growth of the church and sharing of the message to the Jews. And then Paul takes over for 13 through 28, and he talks about the message and takes it to the Gentiles, right? And of course, that's where we're at today. And more specifically, we're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, right? So he takes three that are documented. This is in the middle of his second missionary journey. And of course, Paul's mission is about, you know, sharing God's saving grace through Christ, right? Through those that believe in Jesus. And he's also checking up on the churches, you know, that he helped plan. He's going back through some of those churches and helping them with their struggles that they are having. So that gets us to our passage today um, in the book of Acts. And we're going to step through this just verse by verse. And there's several things. Um, I think we've got everything downloaded on the app. Uh, so my custom church app, everything's on there. And then also there's uh, highlights, just the five line highlights in your bulletin if you like to do that as well to help follow along. So, all right, so... Back to chapter 17. So this is good here. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. All right, so if we just start reading the scripture, right, we say Paul was waiting for them. All right, so who is Paul waiting for? Right, so if you look back just a, few, just a few verses, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy because actually they had just came from another city, uh, Berea, right? And Paul had kind of stirred up some people there. He had stirred them up, right? And he, they said, go ahead, get out of here. Get out of here and we'll take care of this. Take care of this here. You get out of here before they come after you and attack you and possibly kill you. So Paul is standing or sitting, waiting for them in Athens, okay? And he can't handle it anymore, right? His spirit is starting to get provoked a little bit. Um, but he said, excuse me, Paul and Silas... Make sure I got my names right. Silas and Timothy, excuse me. Silas and Timothy, he was waiting for them. He was waiting for them, and that's the first part, because there is strength in numbers, right? There's strength in numbers. We see that throughout Scripture, right? We see that in Luke 10, chapters 1, cha excuse me, 10, verses 1 through 3. You can turn with me there and mark that down. It says, 
After this, Lord appointed, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was to go. And he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out those laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then we see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Right? So there's strength in numbers. Right? There's strength in numbers. Right? And we learn that when we send out two by two, there's benefits of that. The first one is training. Right? A lot of times when you go out with a partner, you know, whether you're on a service call, right? you have an experienced person, younger person, you go out two by two, and then you learn and you grow. And that was the case here, right? As Paul is the experienced one, right? And he's training other folks. There's another benefit of the two-by-two two method or in a group method, right? And that is the witness of two people. Well, did you believe if something miraculous happens and one person says that it happened, do they have a lot of credibility? Eh, sometimes. One person saw it, well, they're they kind of crazy, right? But when two people see it, does the validity of that testimony increase? Or what they seen? Yeah, right? Because two or more people seen it. And so I think that's, that's definitely a benefit. When two people see it, it has more. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Say amen when you get there. Brian, you're cheating? Yeah. All right. Just look up. Brian's got on the screen. So we talk about if one person sees it, eh, maybe it happened. Two people see it, it increases, right? But in 1 Corinthians here, Paul actually writes to this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with those Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than how many? Five hundred. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right? He appeared to me. I think that's just a, a message to pull out of this, right, as he gives strength to his testimony even later on, right, that more than one person saw our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ resurrected. Hundreds of people, if not thousands, saw it. But hundreds is what is recorded in God's word. And then also additional benefit of um, strength in numbers is the ability to support one another. The ability to support one another. Um, yesterday at Upward, we talked a little bit about joy. And my son came up and I said, hey man, you're going to get knocked down. And he fell down for me. We did a good wrestling fake, right? He's going to get knocked down, right? But when you have that joy in your Christ, you're able to bounce back up. Right? Because you have the joy of Christ in your heart. But you also have a helping hand for someone to help you up. Right? Not just on in a journey, but we're all on a journey of in our life together. Right? We're all on a journey in our life together. And a lot of times in marriage, he gives us a partner for life. And it is that responsibility and duty of that partner to support each other in marriage. Right? When one person is down, you pick them up. You picked them up, then you might fall down, right? And you help pick each other up as you go through that partnership in marriage. 
Right? So these things Paul is waiting for. He's waiting for here in Athens. Right? He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to get with him. But something's happening inside of him. He goes around, he sees these idols, he sees these idols, he's just getting, he's getting to see it, it's building and it's building and it's building and it's building. And it says the Spirit provoked him. The Holy Spirit is just building inside of him and he can't take it any longer. He can't keep his mouth shut about what's wrong in this city and he explodes. But he does it in such a great way. Right? He does it in such a great way. And that's the, that's the purpose of this point here is that there is strength in numbers but there is power in the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference between strength and power, right? And Paul is provoked by the Holy Spirit, right? From Huff's lessons the last two weeks, right? He was indwelling in him. The Holy Spirit teaches and reminds us. The Holy Spirit fills us. The Holy Spirit guides us with truth. And the Holy Spirit is a source of revelation, wisdom, and power. All that is brewing in Paul. And he says, I can't take it anymore. And he starts to preach. He's bursting at the seams. And he starts in the synagogue. He always starts in the synagogue. But then where does he go next? Reason in the synagogue with the Jews. And then back in our main passage, he goes to the marketplace. Right? How many people go to Martin's? Or Aldi's? Right? We go to Aldi's a lot. Well, Renee goes to Aldi's a lot. Right? How many people go to Walmart? Uh, we try not to anymore, but Walmart. Right? But you have to go to Walmart. All right? Um, but he went to the marketplace, right? So, of course, the marketplace is a little bit different <laughs> right, than a Walmart or Aldi's today, but that's how it relates to us. Marketplace kind of like a center square where everybody's got it. It's more like a farmer's market, you know, of how we would relate it today. But he goes to the center, right, and he just starts preaching the message of Christ and salvation to anybody that would hear and listen. Another small word in here. But it's so important. It says he goes to the marketplace when? He goes every day. Every day. He doesn't go when it's convenient for him. He doesn't go on Monday mornings because he wants to start his week off great. He doesn't go on Sunday mornings because he's supposed to. He goes every day to the marketplace to share the message of Christ. I think that's very important for us because we might not like it, but sometimes... You know, God pushes us and prompts us and stretches us to go whenever we might not want to. We have to listen to his call. We have to listen to that Holy Spirit that is in us. All right? And then it also says here, to those who happen to be there. He wasn't focused on one particular kind of person. He was focused on anyone. Any person that would listen. And even if they didn't listen, he just kept talking. Right? He just kept talking. His persistence was led by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first point. Strength in numbers, but there's power in the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, then we'll continue on down to verses 18 through 21. So the Epicurean and the Stoic. I'm like, whew, what are those guys? Right? The Epicurean and the Stoic. So you're doing a little research here. There's, there's these two people, Epicurean, or two groups. So the Epicurean people were centered on their search for happiness. That sounds good, right? They're centered, they center their lives around their search for happiness. So pleasure is the beginning and fulfillment of a happy life. All right? So you think, oh boy, that could get carried away. All right? But it says, to Epicurus, happiness could only be achieved through tranquility and a life of contemplation. 
The goal of Epicureanism was to acquire a trouble-free state of mind, to avoid the pains of the body, and especially mental anguish. Epicurean believed in gods, this is important, he believed in gods, but he thought they were totally unconcerned with the lives or troubles of mortal men. Okay? So he believed, so this group of people that Paul's talking to believed in gods, right? But he was not involved in their life. And then Stoicism stressed fate, that the world is beyond our control as individuals, therefore we must create his or her own stability by forsaking excesses on both pleasure and sorrow. The stoic person is unmoved by emotion. There is no good or evil as such, only inscrutable, all-powerful, impersonable cosmic logic that causes things to happen. Right? So there's just this cosmic force that just causes things to happen. It's not relatable. It's nothing that you, know, you can create a relationship with. We're just there. So you've got these two people, these two groups that he's arguing with or conversing with there in, um, in the city, in the marketplace. Okay? All right? These people, actually, when it says in our reading, when it says in our reading, it says, um, for you bring some th strange things to our ears, we wish to know more um, about you. They're actually, these men and women are actually, they're so God, little G-centered, that one of the things that I was reading was they try to make Jesus a God, but then they also try to make this concept of the resurrection a, a, a God because they just want to say, put little things in every little bucket, right? That's what they want to do, try to compartmentalize everything, but that doesn't lead to a relationship with Christ, right? So I want to look at idolatry a little bit. So the Athenians were full of idols, and it was actually said that it was easier to find an idol in that town than it was to find a person. It was actually easier to find an idol than to find a person. Right, and there are plenty of warnings in Scripture about idolatry, and I want to hit a few of those quickly here this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Verses 3 through 4. All right. Get there, say amen. Man. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in water under the earth. You shall have no other gods before me. This is embedded right where? In the middle of the, how many? Ten commandments. Not a quick trick question. Right? Not a trick question. Right? But right in the middle of the ten commandments. Inside joke there. I'm going to stare at my son. We were doing a math problem this week, and we got the number of disciples and the number of commandments flipped around. So it was a good, it was a good exercise. All right. All right, and then Leviticus 26.1. Leviticus 26.1, flip over. It says, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down before it, for I am the Lord your God. Sounds repetitive, doesn't it? You hear that once? We hear it twice? All right? Okay. All right, and then Psalms 135, 15 through 17. This one's a good one. They're all good, but... 
thumb up and just like, ring, ring that bell in your head, right? So Psalms 135, verses 15. I'm actually going to add through 18 here too. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Sounds just like Athens, where we're at. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Right? Okay. So God tells us here in his scripture and warns us about having idols in our lives. Okay, Idols in our lives. Tim Keller, this is a good quote. It says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. I think to myself, oof, oof, oof. That's a convicting quote to support the convicting scriptures that we have about idolatry in our lives. You know, we want to, we want to, I, I harp on the iPhone a lot, you know, or, or our phones in general, right? Just trying to make sure we're not a slave to that or that's not our idol. But think about these overarching concepts of idolatry in our lives. Think about comfort. Is comfort an idol in your life? Think about intellect. We all want to be smart. We all want to know what's going on. But are we prideful because... I know more than Will or, you know, Rob, you know, do I get, is it prideful, right? Does it become an idol to know the most, to know the most that we, that we have to know? Think about food, Think about food. Even Lillian, there's like, hey, can she go back to the hotel? I was like, yeah, sure, you can go back. I was like, she'll probably just watch some what? Cooking shows on TV. She loves watching cooking shows on TV, right? But how much do we get absorbed in our lives to where cooking and food can actually be an idol in our lives? I even thought about last night, my sister had some leftover barbecue on her plate, and I'm like, man, I'm good. My portion was good. And she goes, I was like, were well, you going to eat it? She said, no. I'm like, all right, let me have it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was like, I didn't really need to eat that last little bit. But I was like, well, I can't let it go to waste, right? But, but no, but th that becomes overarching. Right, um, wealth is another one, right? Wealth is another one. Currently reading a book um, from Oz Guinness, it's called The Call, and he's talking about wealth in this chapter, and there's a quote in here from John D. Rockefeller, and he was asked how much money it takes to make a man happy. What do you think the answer to that would be? How much money does it take to make a man happy? More than he's got? Don't know? What do you say, Randy? Never enough. <laughs> Hadn't found it yet, right? His reply was, just a little bit more. Right? Just a little bit more. If I had just a little bit more, then what happens? You get there, and then what? Just a little bit more. And it stays the top focus, priority in our life, not God our Creator. Success can be an idol. Relationships can also be an idol. Relationships. And I thought this, this quote as well, 
still in the same book. It's talking a little bit, it's still in the money chapter, but he's talking about relationships. And I just, I wanted to share this with you. It says, ironically, a free market does not create a society as free as many think. For the constant pricing and changing of everything acts like a series of custom tolls blocking the free flow of ideas and relationships. Here we go. Equally ironic, we eventually cannot afford what we most desire, and that is deep relationships. For if time is money and people take time, then the opportunity cost of relationships will be prohibitive for the intimate relationships will be few. Because spending time with friends is costly. Therefore, we could invest it better elsewhere. Right? And that's just not what it's about. Right? The wealth there takes over the priority of those relationships in our lives. And I think that's a, that's a not a common, it is, it's kind of a common theme in the church because we're reluctant to build relationships even with other believers. Therefore, the true strength and true potential of the church is never really unleashed because we're afraid of what other thinks, which takes us right to another idol, which is approval, right? What do we do? We, we do things in our lives just to make other people happy. I'm going to talk next week about the audience of one, right? That the only person that matters is God in our lives. He's our true audience, right? And then the last overarching theme here of, of idolatry hurts the most self self everything we do in our lives revolves around who us me but it needs to revolve around who God right God okay okay also in 18 through 21 one of the things that I pulled out of here that just that I wanted just to share with you is because it says that there is a desire to hear. Okay? There is a desire to hear. And I want to just make sure that people are lost. People are struggling. And people who you may not think have a desire to hear about Christ, they need something. And we have the hope that they need. There are people that are desiring to hear the Word of God. Okay, And they took him, Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teacher it, teaching is that you are presenting. All right? So think about if you're Paul, and you're like, the Holy Spirit is burning in you, and you want me to go to the Areopagus, and you want me to go to the middle of town, and you want me to give this big, long speech to everybody about who my God is. You think he was excited and stoked about it? I would think so. He's got this chance, this opportunity. Right? All right, so I want everybody to cup, cup, your, uh, cup your hand just like this. Everybody cup your hand just like this. Why don't you put it over your mouth? Why don't you go? Very good. That's so funny. Thank you for playing along. Right? All right. So when we go through life and we have a stage, the Lord's blessed me with a platform this morning to share with you about Christ. Right? We get a stage. You're on a stage every day. Right? And you have a little megaphone, right? And this is about how we blow it. Right? But Paul had what? Hey, guys. Pay attention. I got what you need here. 
right? You're lost, got a savior, right? What's that song? You got pain, I got a pain taker, right? Okay? He was there. He was using, sorry, I don't do that much more. He was using, right, his platform. And he was using a megaphone, not literally, right? Not literally, right? But he's using it. We have so much more power in us with the Holy Spirit to share the message of Christ to others. Don't just go, Brr. all right? That's going to be your takeaway from today. You're going to leave. What did the pastor say? Brr. All right. Brr. All right. Okay? But use that platform, okay? Use that platform um, there. Um, in Romans, in Romans, th- th- keep this with it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. This just captures the spirit of Paul and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the letter of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you go, saying you're ashamed. Why would you not proclaim it? One of the things that drives me nuts um, as, as I get a little bit more um, ugh, older, it's my birthday coming up, I'll say it, older, right? I'll get older, right? Is the fact that when I, when I thought about using this megaphone, I remembered uh, Dr. Fuller. He, he was my band director in college, and he was a short little man. He was a short little man. He always walked around with his megaphone, you know, marching band, line straight here, you know, he, do this, right? He was just... And I got to thinking to myself how absorbed we are in our culture, right? I live it. I do it. We all live it. Do it, right? We get absorbed in our culture. And I think about, you know, how we have this chance. We get so jacked up on whether it's a wrestling match or, or a boxing match or a big game, scores a touchdown. There's 100,000 fans going, yes! And then somebody gets saved in church and we go... Sometimes we get an amen. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I'm like, man. I still like to see what the score is. I want to I I know. I want to be in the know at the water cooler. Did you see that big play last night? Yeah. I want to know. I'm not saying turn off the culture because we have to be in the culture. But it's really hard not to get absorbed by the culture. So, that's the second point. Don't be afraid to speak to people anytime or anywhere about Christ. Don't be afraid. Easier said than done. I know. I'm here to reinforce, point you to the scriptures. If you're relying on me to give you the strength to speak to the others, you're relying on the wrong person. I'm just pointing you to the verses in scripture and let the Holy Spirit give you the power. And the strength to speak about Christ. So don't be afraid to speak to people anywhere or anytime. Well, how do I do this? Guess what? Answer's right here. Okay? So let's keep reading. Okay? Keep reading. Verses 22 through 27. You know, Paul is standing there. Right? And he's got this audience. Captive audience. Men of Athens, I perceive to you in every way that you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Right? What's Paul do? Does he open up with, I hate your lifestyle, you're horrible, you're a sinner, you're going to hell. Does he open up with that? No. 
he opens up with, hey, I perceive that you're very religious. He opens up with a what? A compliment. He opens up with a compliment. A couple weeks ago, we were studying in Daniel. And uh, boy, Daniel had some bad news for the king, right? He had some bad news for the king. He go in there and say, hey, you're going to die. No, because he might have died if he had went in there and said that. But what does he say? In Daniel 2, verses 36 through 38, 30, Daniel 2, verses 36 through 38, it says, this was his dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretations. Daniel standing before the king. It says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule all over them, you are the head of gold. He goes into the king, he gives him a compliment, he warms him up a little bit, right? And that's what we have to do with the folks that we're trying to share Christ with, and that is find common ground. Find common ground. There was a friend of mine, Gary Richardson, you know, he was a two-on-two, go out to this apartment complex, go out to this. I'm like, dude, that would scare me. How do you do that? How do you just go to somebody's house? Just start talking about Jesus. He said, you find common ground. He said, if there's a tractor in the driveway, what are you going to talk about? The tractor. If there's a boat in the driveway, that's the easy one. That's what I'm going to do for my evangelism. I'm going to ride around town. Somebody got a boat in the yard, I'm talking to that guy. All right? I can do that. Yeah. All right? But find common ground. And that's exactly what Paul did here, right? He did not provoke them. He gave them compliments, right? And he, and he built them up, right? And he found this common ground. That's, that's incredible how he did it. Well, I know how he did it with the Holy Spirit. But it said he found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, right? The unknown God. So history says that, um, you know, John Birch said that 600 years prior to this point when Athens... Uh, Paul's in Athens. 600 years prior, there was a serious plague, really big plague, right? So everybody got together. They said, what are we going to do? I remember who I said here, they're a town full of idolatry, okay? So they let out this one farmer's sheep into the town, okay? Bunch of sheep, let them go out into the town. Wherever the sheep laid down, slaughtered, sacrificed, okay? Wherever it was. And if there was one of them that laid down not beside an idol, they sacrificed the sheep there and called it a sacrifice to an unknown God. Because they were so concerned about making a God mad, they didn't want to leave the unknown God out. Right? And so that's how they got to the... He saw the uh, shrine or monument to the unknown God. Because they wanted to make sure they covered all of their bases. All right? So that's how the story of that unknown God got there. Okay? So Paul chooses that as his common ground. He compliments them. He talks about this unknown God. And then he uses that right now to provide a list of what our God the Father, our God the Creator, was able to do. It says... Here, right, this list, it says that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from every man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He has determined the allot of periods and boundaries and dwelling place, for they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. So he chose an unknown God, and he put the true God in it, right? And he's telling them about God and what he has done for them, okay? So he's using that, okay? Right? And then it says it gives to all mankind life and breath. And you think about, what well, another reason you don't want to share it, well, I don't want to, I don't want to stumble over the scriptures, right? People don't, let's see, ooh, be careful how I say this. People don't care about scriptures. People, when I say that, let me preface that, okay? All right? They don't care that Matthew 4.19 says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They don't care that Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, do not conform. You know, they, they don't care what the scripture says. When you first talk to them, they want to know that they are loved. And they have a creator that made them and knows them. If you're not sharing Christ with others because you're worried about falling over a scripture verse, that's not where you need to be. The best way to share Christ is to share what Christ means to you. The knowledge, the education, the verses, all that stuff will come later. But to get to their heart, you find that common ground that they need. And then you share what Christ has meant to you. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to go there. All right, the last part of this verse, it says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is good. Feel their way toward him. I was debating on whether to get down because I don't know if I can get back up. I went to a skate park last week. It did not end well for me. But I think I can get back up, right? But no, it says, feel their way toward him, right? So when you're down, right, and you're blind, what do you do? What do you do? Right? Oh, what do you do? You feel. What sense are you using? Touch. Because what? How's your sight? These people are blind. These people are blind. You could glance right over this verse, but to me it speaks volumes. Feel their way. Because Paul's telling us, just like many of our lives, they're blind because they can't feel. Or they need to feel. But where do they need to feel their way towards? Toward that unknown God, which he is trying to explain to them, that is God their creator. Right? When we hand... Right, there's a passage, right? Oh, sorry. Say, right? Thy word is a what? Lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? These people are blind, feeling their way. And then though they find him, it's like two different areas. Once they find him, you open that word, and then they can see with the light, right? And then you share that light with them. I thought that was a very powerful piece of this scripture that would get glanced over, but feel their way toward him, okay? So we find that common ground. Once we find that common ground, then we share Christ with them, Okay? We share Christ with him. It says in 35, yet, or verse 37, the end of it, it says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
He's not far from each of us. How many of you feel him every day? I try to start my day with him. Right? He's not far from us. He walks with us. He talks with us. Come to the garden alone. Oh, it's a pretty song. Right? He walks with us. He talks with us. Yeah, keep singing it. He is not impersonable. He is not far away. We are capable of knowing who this unknown God is as we live and move in Him. Paul is such a smart man. He goes on to actually, now he quotes their culture. He pulls out of their culture. He quotes two people. In Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. All right? For we are indeed his offspring. This poem is from Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. All right? He was a poet 300, 400 years before Paul is in Athens at this time. One of what they consider one of their greatest poets. And Paul quoted it. Like I said, you need to know the culture but not be consumed in it. Another great example. Paul knowing the culture but not being consumed in it. This is, this is the first four lines of this poem. Let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of his deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. Right? So Paul pulled that, for we are indeed his offspring, out of that poem right? and used it in his own argument. For who God the Creator, God the Father, is and was. Okay. Interesting side note, this is a, this is a poem from uh, Phenomena, or an excerpt from Phenomena was the name of the poem. This guy that wrote this poem, guess which is the only poem of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems that he writ, wrote and written, oh gosh. Looking back at Renee, because she's teaching English. All right, of all the ones that he wrote... Which poem survived for us today in its entirety is the one that Paul quoted from? I think that is cool. I think that is neat. The fact that all of his other work is destroyed, except the one that Paul quoted. Like, what? Oh, cool. We study that. It still ties together. Okay. But he's bringing it now from God. Excuse me. Let's go to Isaiah 1-2. Isaiah 1-2. So they're talking about Zeus being important for them, that offspring. Right? But in the book of Isaiah, the very one, he's talking about the Israelites. Isaiah 1 verse 2, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Right? Have rebelled against me. So right here in Isaiah, is talking about we are God's children, but we have rebelled. Paul's relating that just to them, right? You are God's children. You belong to this unknown God that you serve. But you are God the Father, God the Creator. You are His offspring here. He continues 
to do that. And then he switches over to God the Father. Now he gets into it a little bit more with them as he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver. So all this stuff that you make, all the stuff that you worship, that's not who God the Father is. It says, now it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now this one hurts me. This one hurts me. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Who's ever said ignorance is bliss? Anybody ever said that? Yeah, I said it. I don't want to know about it. But when it comes to this topic, is ignorant bliss? No. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to your personal salvation. It's not. And that's why Paul is just speaking so strongly here. And he continues to take it. Is that now we've overlooked it, but now he commands us. So Paul's telling them right now, all you've done in the past, it's done, it's over. But guess what? Now is the time to repent. Because God commands it. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that man being Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. Whom he has appointed. Right? It's ironic that I still, when we read the Old Testament and New Testament, we're like, wow, it's just like that today. And this is a prime example of it is just like today in many senses, as in they're worshiping their own idols and their own gods. And what do we do? We worship our own idols and we worship our own gods. But we don't worship the true God and our true creator. I think right here when he's, he, I, just for you know, as you know as well, this is not everything that Paul said that day. Okay? Think about it. If he had that megaphone, do you think all he would say would be recorded in a couple paragraphs in four minutes? No. No. Right? So, you know, we live in a culture where, unfortunately, our evangelistic message is Jesus loves you, which he does. But we stop there at Jesus loves you. Right? In this passage... It doesn't even mention the word or name Jesus. It mentions a man, right, which we know is Jesus. But I know that Paul spent, I would say, probably a couple hours on Jesus that day. But for who this audience is and everything, it's simply reduced here um, to a man. I don't mean to say that in a bad way, reduced. right? But this argument here just says here in the scripture. Right? But repent because the end is coming. And as I shared earlier... Paul's relating in his argument to the unknown idol, God, man, here. He's tying it all together. And I don't want you to get confused with any of that. I want you to simply leave with the fact that the best way to teach others and share others about Christ is to share your story. That's it. Share your story. People don't want to hear a bunch of rules and regulations. They want to hear how your life has changed because of your relationship with Christ. How many people like talking about themselves? Sure, I don't know. Yeah, talk about myself. All right. Well, when you talk about yourself, make the center of that conversation about Jesus. Right? And share it with others. Okay? Share it with others. Okay? At the very end here, it says uh, in verse 31, appointed and at that time given assurance, all raising him from the dead. Right? So Paul's wrapping up his topic here. And he talks about the resurrection. And when he gets to the resurrection, it becomes the sticking point of the conversation for a lot of these people. 
And there's where we get to the last two sections, last two verses. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed him, among whom also were Dionysus and Demarius. Another reason we don't share Christ with others is because we're scared of the outcome. We're scared of the outcome. I can tell you the outcome of the conversation. Paul tells us the outcome of every conversation you will have with non-believers. Three, one of three things will happen. One of three things will happen. So there, I took away your fear. Because I can tell you what's going to happen when you share Christ with others. In this passage, Paul hears. What? First one, some mocked. Right? So, you share Christ with others, somebody could mock you. Okay? It's a common theme. It's a common theme. Job, um, Job in Job 17. Job 17, 2. It says, Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Job was mocked. David, in Psalms 69, 12. It says, I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. David was mocked. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, verse 7, it says, I have become the laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. That could happen. It will happen. The toughest one, Matthew 26, 67 through 68 says, Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophecy to us, you Christ. Who is this that stuck you? Mocking Christ. Mocking Christ. So if you share Christ with others, you will be mocked. Or you could face reluctance. So you have that rejection or you have reluctance. All right. When I think of reluctance, the first story that popped into my head was John 16 with the young ruler. Right? John 16, the young rich ruler. Right? And what? He want to know, what do I need to follow you? Right? At the end of the conversation, Christ says, hey, sell all your possessions, follow me. What do you want to do? He didn't want to sell everything. He was reluctant. He wanted it. But he was reluctant. Was Moses reluctant to God's call first? Oh, yeah. He was reluctant. Was Paul reluctant to Christ's call? He tried to kill everybody. I would call that reluctance. Right? He was reluctant. So you have rejection, reluctance. The best one of all, of course, is reception. Right? Reception. And our passage here... It gives us that Dionysus and Demarius joined the teachings, joined the fellowship, were baptized into Christ. Right? But guess what? You can never have reception unless you share Christ. Or they can never have reception unless you share Christ, right? So, but which one outweighs it? I, I just, there, there's, oh gracious, there's a, I'll just never forget Pastor Jose standing up here and said, there's foreign people 
I've got to share Christ with. There's four, like on his heart, right? there's four people. Just think about who we need to share Christ with. If we don't share them, they will not have that opportunity. It is worth so much, it is worth the mocking. It is worth the reluctance to have someone receive Christ. It is worth it. It is worth it. Our last point is let the Holy Spirit convict. Okay. You have to turn with me to John 16, verses 8 through 11. Excuse me. John 16, verses 8 through 11. All right, John 16, verses 8 through 11 says, And when he comes... He, being the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Excuse me. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And when he comes, he will convict what? The world. We cannot convict someone's heart. We can't do it. All that we can do is share Christ with them. And we can pray for their heart to be open to Christ. We cannot make that personal decision for someone else. But our responsibility is to tell as many people as we can. All right? So Paul, right here, shows us in this passage today, and these are your takeaway, these are your bullet points, right? That there is strength in numbers, but there is power in the Holy Spirit. We cannot be afraid to share Christ. Easiest way to do that is find that common ground. Find that common ground to share Christ. And then let the Holy Spirit convict their hearts. And let the Holy Spirit convict their hearts. Let's stand.